Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 19. And we read together from verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning, but Mishal, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Mishal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Mishal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Mishal said, He is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Mishal, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Mishal told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men. And they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left Pharama and went to the great cistern city at Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? 
Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and night. This is why people say, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we've been singing, we do indeed pray, Heavenly Father, that we would uh, meet your Son uh, in your word. And as we've been asking the question through this service, to whom can we compare you, our God? We pray that today we'd see there is no other comparison. And that indeed the Lord Jesus would become so wonderful to us. We would be so enthralled with him and all he's done for us. That our loyalty would be to him above all others. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please do sit. Well, I had my own uh, welcome to that of uh, Ben's uh, through the service, and uh, it's uh, very good to see you here. Um, two things you might like to do. One would be to dig out the, uh, the sermon outline uh, that you'll find tucked inside your bundle. Again, that will be helpful as we'll have a couple of quotes from there. Whether you want to take notes or not, um, I think you'll still find it useful to see where we're going. And uh, if you haven't been here before or not been for a while, then we're going through a series of in 1 Samuel. We started at chapter 16 when David arrives on the scene and uh, we're at chapter 19. And to that end, you might also like to grab hold of your Bible and turn with me to page 291. 291 and the reading that Fred read for us just now. Let me tell you, if I may, about two people that I met when I worked uh, for a church in London. I can't tell you their names because uh, this sermon will be available on the internet and it might sound a bit dramatic, but it would put them in danger if you knew their names or if others knew their names. But they are real people and I came to know them both when I worked in London as they both attended uh, the midweek lunchtime service uh, that I looked after in this particular church. The first was a young Muslim woman in her 20s. Well, she was raised a Muslim, but when uh, I met her, she'd become a Christian. Uh, she still lived at home, and so she couldn't attend church on a Sunday because her family would have asked her where she was going, and indeed, uh, she was pretty sure they would have followed her. So she came along to our uh, midweek lunchtime service, but she was even very nervous then that her family might find out. But here's the thing. She wanted to be faithful to Jesus, even though she knew her family would hate her for it. The second person, similarly, was a man in his uh, mid-50s when I met him. He was raised an Orthodox Jew, and for the first 44 years of his life, he'd embraced and lived Judaism. He was married to an Orthodox Jew. His grown-up children were Orthodox Jews, and they were married to Orthodox Jews. But he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he too attended the lunchtime service, because for him too to go to church on a Sunday, he would run the risk of losing his family. He would be completely ostracised, he knew, if they knew that he was now a Christian. And to follow Jesus cost both these people far more than I am ever likely to experience personally. It would have been far easier for both of them to put their family before Jesus, but they would not. Hard as it was for them, they remained faithful to Jesus. Their primary loyalty was to him. Indeed, particularly when I think of uh, the times that I spent uh, with this, uh, this guy in his mid-50s. Um, he was a great inspiration to me uh, as he spoke of his great love of Jesus 
and his wonderful appreciation of Jesus because, of course, he was steeped in the Old Testament. Well, tonight, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 19, we'll see that they not only made the right choice, which you'd expect me to say, but they made the sensible choice as well. And while for some of you sitting here, you might say that's a bit way off all of that, you'll see as we go through that there are still choices that we have to make all the time who we will be loyal to. Turn with me then to 1 Samuel chapter 19, and we only have to read verse 1 to see what's going on in the chapter. Verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. That's what this chapter is about. Saul wants to kill David, and he wants others to help him make it happen. And that's the conflict throughout this whole section of 1 Samuel. We saw it in chapter 18 uh, a couple of weeks ago because we had a break last week with our missionary Sunday. But we saw it a couple of weeks ago. Saul, King Saul, hated David and he wanted him dead. Now, David, you'll remember, was the Lord's anointed king. Back in chapter 16 where we start this series, we, we saw that David was God's chosen one and we saw him being anointed by the prophet Samuel. David then was the Messiah, for the word Messiah simply means the Lord's anointed. And here is Saul wanting the Messiah dead. And so John Woodhouse writes, and you'll see the quote on the handout. The tension through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel arises from the fact that the king who had been rejected by God, Saul, was still in power. While the king who'd been chosen by God, David, was yet to begin his reign. And that brilliantly sums up and describes not only this part of 1 Samuel, but the very world we live in. There is one who wants to be king in this world, Satan. The Bible describes him as the God of this age. And he is waging war against God's king, God's chosen king, Jesus. Jesus is not yet acknowledged as the supreme and undisputed ruler of all things. One day he will be. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no doubt that Jesus is king. But until that day, we live in a state of constant tension. Jesus is God's king, God's anointed king, but there is another one who wants to be king. And we have to decide where our loyalty will lie. And let me tell you, every day, to a greater or lesser extent, every day, I face that question, who will I follow? It's not about whether I'm going to suddenly chuck in being a Christian, although it might come to that for some. But every day I face decisions. Who will be king? Every decision I make in the thoughts that bounce around in my head, I'm always battling with that question. Every day there are moments when I have to decide if I will be self-sacrificial as Jesus wants me to be, putting others first, not acting out of selfish ambition, but humbly denying myself and considering others better than myself. I can do that or I can follow the God of this age who tells me to look after number one, to put myself first, to thrust myself forward. So you see, every day I face the question, who will I follow, God's Messiah as king? Or do I want to follow another king? Or make myself king? Well, that's the choice that Saul puts before those around him. Verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Now, through the chapter, there are four incidents where Saul tries to kill David. And on each occasion, we see David escaping. That's how this chapter works. Now, the first one comes in verses 1 to 7, where we see the first point on the handout The Lord uses Jonathan to rescue David, verses 1 to 7. 
So in verse 1, you'll see the gloves are off. There's no messing around here anymore. We've already seen Saul trying to kill David. We saw that back in chapter 18. But then, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, when Saul hurled a spear at David, it was in private. And when Saul plotted to have David put on the front line and killed by the Philistines, it was surreptitious. Here it's very different. Saul is quite upfront with his desire to, to, to have David killed. He's so upfront about it, he tries to recruit his attendants. And here's the thing for us, even his own son, Jonathan, he tries to get in on the act. And that's the point we're not to miss here. Jonathan is Saul's son. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, I know that. But we're not to miss it because the writer writes in a way to make sure that we don't miss that what is at stake here is a father-son relationship. That's what's on the line. See, as I read this, I'll emphasize it and you'll see how often it comes. Verse one, Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding, stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of Saul, uh, spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David and so on. And you see the point. Uh, the, the writer emphasizes the relationship. Jonathan is Saul's son. Saul is Jonathan's father. This then is a story of how love for the Messiah is greater even than love for family. So we're given the strongest bond that we could think of. And if uh, it's meant to be stronger for the Messiah than even our family, then we can know it should be stronger for the Messiah than anyone. That reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. Again, I've put them on the handout for you. Jesus said, if anyone, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, look, in Jonathan, we meet someone whose love for David was greater than his love for his father. He's stated there in verse 1, Jonathan was very fond of David, we read. That's a bit weak, really. In the ESV, it's better. As it reads, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. You'll remember how Jonathan declared his love and loyalty to David back in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Jonathan made a covenant with David and he handed over his royal robe to David. He treated David as king. Now, here in chapter 19, we see just how genuine that was as Jonathan chose his love for David above his love for his father. Look at how Jonathan stood up to Saul with his brilliant words in verses 4 and 5. Jonathan spoke well of David and said to Saul, his father, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done? And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? They are great words. Here's why Jonathan was loyal to David. But remember what we've seen all along. David is the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. And as such, David is a shadow of the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus. And so Jonathan spoke better words than he realised. 
He spoke here of the Messiah to come. And so these words not only say why Jonathan was loyal to David, but why we should be loyal to Jesus above everyone else, even our family. See, in verse 4, Jonathan described David as Saul's servant. Remarkably, God's anointed king serves us. Isn't that incredible? And he serves us in a way that, end of verse 4, benefits us greatly. In verse 5, we read David took his life into his hands. Well, we see tonight as we take bread and wine, the Messiah did more than that. He gave his life for us. And in doing that, verse 5, he defeats the enemy. He wins a wonderful victory for us, a victory over sin and death and Satan. That's what we remember as we take bread and wine this evening. And so the question at the end of verse 5 is the question we should ask ourselves. Why would we want to do wrong to an innocent man by killing him for no reason? But that, of course, is exactly what we did do. The Lord Jesus was killed because people didn't want God's anointed to be their king. Like Saul, we want to be king. And we can only be king if the king, God's anointed, is out of the picture. And so it's a terrible thing, but we want Jesus dead. And so verse four cuts to the heart. He has not wronged you. And yet we want to kill him. And I do deliberately say we. I don't think so highly of yourself that you think that you wouldn't have called for Jesus' blood had you been there 2,000 years ago. You would have done. Uh, The singer-songwriter Nathan Tasker makes the point. He writes these words. I'd like to think that if I was there, as the crowd demanded crucify, I would have been a louder voice calling out to them, what is his crime? But in truth, I can see that although I stand here now, a part of me was there in the rabble when the crime was declared. And I cried out for your blood, let Barabbas be spared. And I'm sorry I left you to the mocking and scorn. And but for the grace of God, I hear my angry voice. I don't need to have been there 2,000 years ago to know that I'd have shouted for Jesus to be crucified. I don't have to have been there. I just have to look into my own heart. So how amazing the cross is. You want him dead and yet the son of God loved you and gave his life for you. Can't compare him to anyone else, can you? And that's why we should be loyal to him. Well, Jonathan said these brilliant words in verses four and five and his words seemed to do the trick. Verse six, Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So uh, the Lord used Jonathan to rescue David. Secondly, the Lord shielded David from Saul, verses eight to 10. See, at the end of verse 7, we might think all's uh, all's well between Saul and David, but it wasn't long before it all went pear-shaped again. Despite Saul's promise in verse 6, in verse 10, Saul picked up his spear and attempted to turn David into a lamb kebab. It didn't happen the next day, though. You see, verse 8, war broke out against the Philistines and David fought them and he defeated them. Now, I guess that all took a little while. 
But it was that military success that David enjoyed that provoked Saul to try to kill David again. We know that because that's what provoked Saul's jealousy in the previous chapter, when we saw Saul do exactly the same thing and throw a spear at David while he played the harp. You can see that in chapter 18, verses 9 to 11. Now, in chapter 19, we see just what Saul thought about David. See, verse 10 should be translated, as I've put it on the handout, Saul struck his spear into the wall and David fled. It's just over the page on the handout. That's how it should be translated. And it should be translated like that because then we see the link with verse 8, where David struck the Philistines and they fled. Now, once we see the similarity between verse 8 and verse 10, we see that Saul was attempting to do to David exactly what David had done to the Philistines. Saul was treating David as a Philistine, therefore as his arch enemy. And so, verse 10, we read, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. And it's very interesting to see that David never returned to Saul's court again. But here's the thing for us to note. Looking at verses 8 to 10 on their own, what we see is David eluding Saul. The spear missed Saul and made the mess of the wall, I guess. But in the context of the whole chapter, I want to... Did I say the the, the spear missed Saul? I mean the spear missed David. But in the context of the whole chapter, I want to argue that... There was much more going on here. It wasn't just that David had lightning fast reactions or that Saul was a hopeless shot. As we look through this chapter, we'll see the reason the spear didn't turn David into a lamb kebab was because the Lord was protecting David. We'll see that clearly when we look at the fourth escape story in a moment, but we can also get it from Psalm 59. There's no need to turn it up now. But Psalm 59 was written following the incidents recorded here in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And in the psalm, three times David writes, You, O God, are my fortress. And in the psalm, David describes the Lord as his shield. That's why the spear didn't hit him, because the Lord is David's shield. It wasn't just a bit of nifty footwork from David, not because Saul is a rubbish shot, but because the Lord shielded him. And that's really important. We'll come back to that in a moment. So first, the Lord used Jonathan to rescue David. Secondly, the Lord shielded David from Saul. Thirdly, the Lord used Michael, or Michal, as Fred so poshly read it. Um, I don't know what to say now. I'll say Michael, because that's what I've been saying. I'm I'm not as posh as, uh, as Fred. The Lord used Michael to rescue David in verses 11 to 17. So Saul's spear missed David, but David wasn't yet free from Saul's murderous attention. See, at the end of verse 10, all we read is that David made good his escape. Verse 11 tells us that David went home, but also it tells us that he was hotly pursued by Saul's hitmen. See, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. And the first part of the chapter, it was Jonathan, Saul's son, who stepped in to rescue David. Now it's Michael who steps in to rescue David. And remember, Michael is Saul's daughter. That's how she was first introduced to us in chapter 18, verse 20. So again, we're confronted with an issue of family loyalty. Michael is Saul's daughter, also married to David, but Saul's daughter, but she loves the Lord's anointed. 
And just as with Jonathan, it's love for the Lord's Messiah that comes above loyalty to family. So see what she does in verse 12. Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. And when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. And they went off. I love it. Michael ruffles up the duvet, looks for the equivalent of stuffing some pillows down the bed and grabs some goat's hair to make it look as if David is lying ill in bed. I remember doing this as a teenager. I did it to wind up my parents, um, wanting them to think that I still hadn't got out of bed even though it was midday. My mum walked into the bedroom saying, now, look, I've told you to get up. It really is time you were out of bed. And I thought it was hilarious as she threw back the covers to find three pillows there. It wasn't that funny, was it? But I thought it was funny. (laughs) So reading this made me smile and made me remember that. But what I find most amusing about this incident is the response from Saul's hitmen. They are clearly a sandwich short of a picnic. Saul has hired them to do his dirty work and all that Michael needs to say to them is David's ill and off they go, presumably to come back in the morning. It's like a comedy. He's ill, that's all she had to say. But if you think about it, they hadn't come to ask David if he'd like a game of five-a-side football. They'd gone there to kill him. What difference does it make if he's ill? If they'd got on with the job they'd been sent to do, a touch of man flu would have been the least of David's problems. But sometimes thugs from the underworld are not the sharpest tools in the box. That's what's going on here. And so the plan worked. They went back to Saul and David gained valuable time to escape. And by the time, verse 15, Saul sent the men back to see David, he'd gone. And verse 16, when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed. And at the head was some goat's hair. And the next thing we read is Saul laying into his daughter Michael, verse 17, Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Why? Because love and loyalty to the Messiah is greater than any family ties. And there'll be some here who need to know that. There'll be some here, I know there are some here, who have to make the same call. It may not be as costly for you as it was for the young Muslim Muslim woman I mentioned. And you may not stand to lose as much as the Jewish man I spoke of. And you'll know that there are people all over the world who are seriously persecuted because they have stood for Jesus, ignoring the demands of their parents to denounce their faith in Christ. So yes, there are people who have it much harder than you, but whoever you are, it is no small thing to put loyalty to Jesus above loyalty to your family. While I've been preparing this week, I've been thinking of a couple of different friends of mine whose parents aren't Christian. Most of the time these days, in their situation, nothing much is said as they meet with their family. But you see, things have been said in the past. And my friends know that their parents think they are wasting their time to be in full-time paid Christian ministry. And their parents think that they have taken leave of their senses to embrace the Christian life. And their parents think that they could do so much better and so much more with their lives. After all, they're educated people. Why are they wasting their time doing this job? So no, these friends of mine are not physically persecuted, but it hurts. And these friends of mine remain loyal to Jesus, but it's hard when they spend time with their family. No, the family are not aggressive, but my friends can't speak openly of the one who is everything to them without knowing that if they do, they'll be the rolling of the eyes. 
And when they speak of their work, they know that their family thinks really what they're doing is a waste of time. That's hard for them. So why do they do it? Well, because of Jonathan's words in verses four to six. My friends know that Jesus has never wronged them. More than that, he has served them by giving his life for them and winning a great victory for them, defeating sin and death and Satan. So why would they want to do wrong to the one who loved them? But you see, there's another reason why they remain loyal to God's anointed king. And we see this in the fourth escape story in this chapter. So we've seen the Lord used Jonathan to rescue David, the Lord shielded David from Saul, the Lord used Michael to rescue David, and now, fourthly, the Lord rescued David by the Spirit of God, verses 18 to 24. So far, one way or another, the Lord's anointed has escaped death. Now, in this fourth and final escape story, we see that, or rather, we see who was behind every escape. Look at verse 18. When David fled and made his escape, he he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Saul went to Naoth and stayed there. Now this is a crucial point in the chapter. We've seen the Lord protecting David through Jonathan and through Michael. So here, as David runs to Samuel the prophet, we might expect that this time, Samuel will be the one who masterminds David's escape. But as we read on, we discover that Samuel can do nothing. For, verse 19, word came to Saul. David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Each time that Saul sent his militia to capture David, they were overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and they began to prophesy. It's an amazing story. Now, exactly what they were doing with this prophecy, exactly what this prophesying looked like, we can't say. We're not told. But I would suggest we don't read too much into it. Not least of all, because when we look back to chapter 18 and verse 10, to the time when a a harmful spirit came upon Saul... That harmful spirit caused Saul to rant and rave in his house and the word used is prophesy. So you see, to prophesy means different things in different contexts. In fact, John Woodhouse writes, what seems to be common to the various contexts is speech under the influence of a power beyond the speaker. That's simply it. And commenting on chapter 9, John Woodhouse suggests it appears to have been some kind of speaking activity, this prophecy, perhaps songs of praise under the influence of the Spirit of God. Well, all that as it may be, most importantly for us, we begin to see what's happening throughout this chapter. Every time Saul has tried to kill David, the Lord has overruled. Saul, Jonathan stepped in. The spear missed David. Michael tricks Saul's men, but every time the Lord was behind David's escape. That's what this final escape story tells us. So we see that with David's back to the wall and nowhere else to run, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, God sent forth his spirit in raw, irresistible power on Saul's police forces and compels them into helplessness. The last escape then tells us that the Lord protects his anointed king. And as we read this, we, 
We can see what's happening because we're told what's happening, but of course Saul can't. And so can you imagine him exasperated by the buffoons in his service, huffing and puffing as he slams the door while putting his coat on and muttering something like, it's always the same round here. If you want to get a good job done, you have to do it yourself. Well, it doesn't say that in verse 22, but I think that's what went on. Verse 22, finally, he, Saul himself, left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Namoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth in Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? It's remarkable. Saul, the self-confessed enemy of God's anointed Messiah, is overwhelmed by the Spirit of God to the point of utter helplessness. Notice he's stripped, he's naked, he's lying on the floor all day and night. He is humiliated. And he's forced to praise God. The point is this, God will not be mocked. Those who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed will not prevail. Here we see powerful King Saul, utterly powerless when he comes up against the awesome power of the Spirit of God. Here we see Saul forced to acknowledge that the Lord is king, compelled to take off his royal robes and declare that God is king. Now, what a contrast he is to Jonathan, who at the beginning of chapter 18, do you remember, willingly took off his royal robe and gave it to David as a mark of his love for the Lord's anointed king. And what happens to Saul at the end of this chapter is exactly what will happen at the end of time. There will come a day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. Whether they want to or not. Willingly or not. One day, everyone will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Either willingly, as Jonathan did in chapter 18, or reluctantly, as Saul does here, as an enemy, humiliated and overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. And that is why loyalty to the Lord's anointed king should come above every other relationship we have, even the closest family relationship we know. Because Jesus is the Lord's anointed king and he will not be defeated. Isn't that what this chapter tells us? The Lord will protect his king and the Lord will stop all attempts to bring him down. That's what we see through this chapter. One day everyone will have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, even his most strident enemies. That's why that young Muslim woman And that middle-aged Jewish man not only made the right choice to be loyal to Jesus, they made the smart choice to put your loyalty to Jesus before everything and everyone else, even family, makes sense. For he is king. The king who has done you no wrong. The king who serves you. The king who lays down his life for you. The king who has won a great victory for you. So why would you not want to follow this king who one day will be seen to be the king and indeed acknowledged as king by everyone? 
Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the Lord Jesus, the one who is our King, the King who has done us no wrong. More than that, the King who has served us by laying down his life for us, the King who has won the victory for us, the victory that we could never win. We thank you for him. And we ask you in those moments of decision every day where we can acknowledge him as our king and indeed respond to him as king or not, that you'd help us to remember who he is and what he's done for us. We pray too that you'd help us to realise that uh, to have loyalty to him is the sensible thing, that that's a smart choice. For one day everyone will bow the knee. So help us both today and in the days ahead to bow the knee willingly in the big and little decisions of life that we may be far more like Jonathan than like Saul. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.